As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. Vine taught people to post video. I mean, it's the reason we have Instagram video. Instagram video launched that in response to Vine. Like this whole like video internet that we have was very much like kicked off by Vine. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. I hope you're having a great start to your week, and I'm excited to share today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Taylor Lawrence, a technology columnist for the Washington Post business section covering online culture in the content creator industry. She was previously a technology reporter for the New York Times business section, The Atlantic, and The Daily Beast. I kind of always have felt much more like an internet person than a journalist, but now I'm both. But I don't identify very much with the people that sort of like always knew they wanted to do journalism and went to journalism school and, you know, did all that stuff because that just wasn't my path. Even though journalism hasn't always been Taylor's path, she's very quickly built quite a name for herself. Her writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, Outside Magazine, and more. She frequently appears on NBC, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and the BBC. Lots of acronyms. She even appears in documentaries on Netflix, Hulu, and HBO, including Netflix, Eat the Rich, The GameStop Saga, HBO's Fake Famous, and HBO's Glitch, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia. In 2020, Taylor helped adapt a feature she wrote for the New York Times into the documentary Who Gets to Be an Influencer, which ran on FX and Hulu. But Taylor's success has come at a price. She's often attacked in the media. She was banned from Twitter at one point, and even her own peers have discounted her unique path to journalism. I mean, my whole like first five years of my job were people shitting on me and saying, like, she's not a real journalist. She's a blogger. She just writes for the Internet. 
When I got my first byline at the in the Atlantic, I shared it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got a feature in the Atlantic. Like I was so proud. And this other big journalist, you know, quote tweeted and said, oh, it's the online version. It's not the real Atlantic. But that hasn't slowed Taylor down. And this week, her first book is available for purchase. It's called Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. I mean, I decided to write this book at this time, actually even just right before the pandemic, because it was like, I felt like the end of this era and I wanted to write about the first 20 years of the social web, basically. I was like, okay, I think the content creator industry has pretty much gone mainstream. That was before everyone even started talking about creator economy and all that stuff. So I think the timing worked out pretty well. I was able to read an advanced copy of the book and I actually couldn't put it down. We've lived through the evolution of the internet, but even I was pretty unaware of some of the roots of influencer culture. This book is a fantastic history of how the creator economy as we know it today came to be. And a lot of the early influences may surprise you. It's almost all women, which is also something that surprised me. I definitely did not set out to write like a women's history, but it's like shocking just how much of my book is women. I noticed time and time again that those were that, that women were like these early adopter communities, especially young women. So I think a lot of them felt very angry that they've been left out of the narrative um, because, again, like so many of the books that we have and the stories that we have about technology and the rise of social media are corporate narratives. So it's like the YouTube story and there's a bunch of YouTube books or the social network and telling the rise of these companies and the executives within them. But there's like this whole other side, which is the users and the content creators and like the MCNs and all these other businesses that emerged around social media that propped up social media and gave it its power that no one had talked to. So in this episode, Taylor and I talk about where influencers came from, the rise and fall of platforms like Vine, the single most important decision YouTube made in their history, and where things may be headed. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Just tag me, say hello. And now let's talk with Taylor. I I mean, now I work for the Washington Post at the time I was at the New York Times. So if you're a journalist at a mainstream publication, like you get to a certain point and people just start to be like, okay, where's the book? Where's the book? (laughs) Are you going to write a book? (laughs) You know, publishers reach out to you about your stories a lot. I've had a lot of um, publishers reach out about specific features that I wrote saying like, have you thought about turning this into a book or do you have an idea that you can expand on? And I didn't really, I initially wanted to write a book about Vine and then no one was really interested in that. So Um, which I think is a shame because Vine is so interesting. There's a lot of Vine in my book. But at this point, I just thought, okay, I want to write a book about the rise of social media, but from the user side, which is how I cover tech, rather than like a story like the social network or something, right, which tells very much like the corporate side of things. I wanted to tell the user side and talk about this content creator industry that emerged and no one else had really written that book. So um, got a book agent and then they sent it to a bunch of publishers. And then I ended up with Simon & Schuster. Well, for what it's worth, the Vine parts of the book are some of my favorite parts. So I think you did a really good job on that on that bit of it. When a lot of people say, I wrote this on nights and weekends on top of my job, they're also not writing an insane amount for their job. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you have to publish on a daily or weekly basis as you're writing this? A lot. I would say the thing is, like, <laughs> most of my time is spent reporting. So 
Writing is like the last 5% of the job of reporting. So, and I write features, so they take a long time. So it's a lot of like calls. And then of course you spend so much time on stories that sometimes don't even get published or they're waiting. I actually have like four stories right now with my editor that are not up yet that I've spent all summer on. So like, you know, it's just kind of, it depends. At the time when I was at the New York Times, I used to do, have to do a lot more breaking news. Right now I'm a columnist. So like, it's been a lot better, but um, my old job, I would have to do a lot more like breaking news. And so it was really hard. But I at the, I mean, at the times I was writing almost every day and now I write less frequently because my stories are longer and more in depth. Yeah. I mean, writing is incredibly draining. There's this meme that I wish I was trying to find it the other day. It's this girl that has like an IV of blood and the blood is coming out and going into her pen and she's writing yeah. and I love it, that. It, but it, it felt like that because sometimes I feel like the blood has been drained out of my body when I'm sure all creative people feel like this. It's like when you finally finish a project or an article, you're like, oh, like I'm so fried. So writing on top of that was exhausting. Well, this is a nice segue into something that I thought I wanted to ask you, which is how much do you personally identify with the term creator? Well, I mean, I started as an internet person and I started as an independent blogger. So I, and I always have had my online audience. I mean, I was a Tumblr person, content creator, and I didn't work in the legacy media for for years. So I kind of always have felt much more like an internet person than a journalist. But now I'm both. But I don't identify very much with the people that sort of like always knew they wanted to do journalism and went to journalism school and, you know, did all that stuff because that just wasn't my path. So I feel more of kind of like a mix, I guess. Yeah. Is it, do you think that's common amongst your peers? Because um, I, I would imagine, I, you know, every journalist is still active on social media, you know, the, the tools that creators use. So I was curious if, if that felt like common amongst your peers? Yeah, most of them are not active on anything except Twitter, um, unfortunately, which the media industry is so heavily reliant on Twitter. And it's such a bummer because I think if journalists use platforms like YouTube or TikTok and Instagram, not just to post like family photos, but actually use them, like they would recognize that these are there's so many stories that go unreported. I was actually, and, and also just this is where people look for news, but I was with another journalist friend last night who's also, she makes YouTube videos and she was like, oh my God, I have these two crazy stories. And I know the stories, one of them stories that she told me, I, I know as well. And I also don't have time for it. <laughs> and we're like, who can we give this? To? Like, there's no other journalists that's, that spend time in these places almost. And anyway, we were like, we need to give this to some drama channel to investigate. Cause like, there's just not that many journalists sort of covering this space very much. But yeah, journalists love Twitter. Um, I do think that Twitter kind of under Musk has like pushed a lot of them elsewhere, which is a good thing. Yeah, it's a mix. I would say younger journalists, like Gen Z journalists, they don't have as much of a barrier. I was talking to this girl, Claire at NPR this morning, who vlogs her life on TikTok all the time and is great. But um, but people of my generation, I mean, my whole like first five years of my job were people shitting on me and saying like, she's not a real journalist. She's a blogger. She just writes for the internet. And that doesn't, when I first got my first byline at the in the Atlantic, I shared it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got a feature in the Atlantic. Like I was so proud. And this other big journalist, you know, quote tweeted and said, oh, it's the, it's the online version. It's not the real Atlantic. And I actually I didn't even that. know at the time, I didn't even know that the Atlantic had a print magazine at the time. <laughs> so it just shows like how these older people are very biased, I think, against the internet when the internet is the most important thing. I mean, journalism is an old school industry. 
I spent a couple of years studying it in, in school and I went to Ohio State. So I got to oh, yeah. cover the Ohio State football team as like a freshman and sophomore in college. And I would look around the room at like media day and see like, oh, I'm not going to get back here for like 30 years. There's no path for me to get back into this room post-college other than putting in my dues for forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just like kind of how it is, I think. A lot of people like put in their dues and they see like, oh, this person got to where I am. Yeah, that's how it used to be. And I think that's why they're so resentful towards younger journalists that don't buy into that system because it's a lie. That whole system's a lie. It's so biased. I don't want to have to wait for 30 years. Like, first of all, I'm not even going to work at the same place for 30 years. You know, like, mm-hmm. who knows what the world will be like. And so I think now more and more people are just building their own platform and and that's the better way to go, I think. It's it's that way in all industries. That's what the creator economy is. You know, we say like there was a way, there were gatekeepers. Now there are new ways around the gatekeepers and sometimes collaboratively with them. But I'd love to, I'd love to look back now. If you began writing this in 2020 and you've been researching it and writing it for three years, I think it'd be interesting to hear what still sticks in your mind as something that was surprising during the process of researching this? Something that you might not have known at the time, but in doing the research you uncovered that might've been like, oh, I didn't realize there was this instigating event or this precursor. Yeah. I mean, one thing I I have a whole chapter in my book on is, is the rise of the mommy blogger. You know, in the early 2000s, I think there was this crop of women that sort of were turning to the internet for community and and built massive audiences through blogging really candidly about motherhood. Prior to writing the book, I think I sort of associated the early creator economy with YouTube, or I thought like, oh, maybe there was some MySpace stars. And I talk about that as well, as well as early YouTube in my book. But I didn't really realize how pioneering the mommy bloggers were. And they really were the original content creators. Like they the revenue streams and the way they went about monetization in the face of so much hate as well. Like that was another thing that surprised me was just like how hateful people were towards these women that were like, you know, breaking barriers and building their own sort of media businesses. Yeah. It was just really interesting because they, they built this whole like ecosystem and some of them ended up being actually huge cross-platform content creators or doing big deals. They're still brands today and they have their own cookware and home lines and stuff, but they started just, yeah, blogging. It wasn't just the YouTubers that started things. After a quick break, Taylor and I talk about some of the most important decisions YouTube made. So stick around. We'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. 
Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Taylor Lawrence. Research is a skill that I think all creators can benefit from, and it's clear from this book that Taylor is great at doing research. So I asked her how she went about identifying some of the most important first movers in the space. I just wanted to talk to people from that era. I talked to the guy who founded UTA's first digital, like they were the first agency to start a digital department in the early 2000s. Um, so I interviewed Brent Weinstein, who founded that. I interviewed tons of people, just like sort of early internet people. I mean, Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, he actually invented the reblog feature, ran it like totally way years before BuzzFeed, which was this early social functionality on blogs. So um, there was just like all these kind of entrepreneurs and kind of personalities and people early at different companies as well that were really open about stuff. I mean, the mommy blogger stuff actually came from someone at YouTube because I was interviewing them about the early partner program. And they were like, yeah, well, one thing that we really noticed online too was these like moms and sort of started to think about revenue on the internet. And so he mentioned it to me and then I was like, oh yeah, you're right. There were those. And so anyway, so um, it just was the process of reporting, which is always just very tedious. It's like talking to one person that tells you something that tells you to talk to another person. And then you go back on the internet archive and you dig things up. And and then I was able to speak to a lot of those women from that era themselves that told me, and, and they put me in touch with like people that they did brand deals with. So I talked to marketers in like, you know, that were doing early sponsored content deals with bloggers in 2004, 2005 and stuff like that. When you spoke to some of these people who played very early seminal roles, but aren't always credited or, you know, they're not always part of the narrative of how yeah. we got to where we are today. How do they feel about that? Are they okay with that? Did they, did they feel slighted by that? They're very angry and slighted and frustrated. And they feel, I, I totally understand how they feel. It's, it's almost all women which is also something that surprised me. I definitely did not set out to write like a women's history, but it's like shocking just how much of my book is women. And actually in talking to Silicon Valley people, I was talking to a really big VC about this. And he was like, well, actually with social technology, like 
if you have young women, like teen girls or young moms using your product, like you're guaranteed a hit, like that is going to be a hit social product. So I thought that was really interesting because I noticed time and time again that those were that, that women were like these early adopter communities, especially young women. So I think a lot of them felt very angry that they've been left out of the narrative um, because, again, like so many of the books that we have and the stories that we have about technology and the rise of social media are corporate narratives. So it's like the YouTube story and there's a bunch of YouTube books or the social network and you know, the history, we have so many books about the rise of Facebook or the, you know, and it's just telling the rise of these companies and the executives within them. But there's like this whole other side, which is the users and the content creators and like the MCNs and all these other businesses that emerged around social media that propped up social media and gave it its power that no one had talked to. So they were all very excited to talk. I, I had didn't have a hard time finding people that were willing to talk. They were like, let me tell you what I did back in 2009 and what it was like. And it was really cool to hear their stories. One of the takeaways I had as I was reading the book was it felt like, one, I really liked that it was chronological, which makes sense because you're kind of telling a, a history. As I'm reading this chronological retelling and a lot of stuff that I didn't know or wasn't really aware enough to experience firsthand, it was like YouTube just kept chugging along. You know, once it entered yeah. the scene, it just kind of kept chugging along and making good moves. Like really, it seemed like they made one really good move, which was the partner program and leaning into supporting their creators. And then all along the way, all these other things kept popping up. And, you know, I'm imagining one of those videos you see on social media sometimes where it shows like a history and all of a sudden like something pops out of nowhere. It was like that, but everything just kept dying in my mind yeah. <laughs> other than yeah. YouTube for the most part and Instagram and by proxy Facebook, I suppose. Am I reading your experience as well? Like do, is, is YouTube a through line in, in your experience of writing and researching the book? A hundred percent. It's kind of crazy, but YouTube has always persevered. I think because they allowed content creators, like the lesson for tech companies in my mind is that like, if you can facilitate the content creator ecosystem and you can let people make money on your platform in a sustainable way, you people are going to use that platform, you know, like that's just the truth of it. And I think YouTube is still the gold standard for monetizing. That's why you see people sort of use TikTok for audience growth, but then they try to convert you to YouTube because it's still that like stable player, you know, it's not going anywhere. It's very saturated, but you know, it's, it's there and they have an infrastructure and they built that infrastructure years before anybody else. So I think while all these other platforms were struggling, like Facebook fumbling the bag, like multiple times and struggling, like, how do we deal with these people? And do we want them, you know, Twitter and Vine, like, should we pay them? Should we not pay them? YouTube's like, we have our program. It's gone in different directions and different, you know, it's like sort of scaled and grown, but um, yeah, they really are the gold standard. And I think pioneered so much. I didn't remember, I had heard this before, but I didn't remember it, that YouTube literally started as a dating website. Yeah. That's bonkers to me. Yeah, they wanted people to upload like videos of themselves, which is so funny. And actually, I do have to recommend one book about YouTube, which is Mark Bergen's Like, Comment, and Subscribe. It's it's a corporate history of YouTube, but it uh, he has a lot more details about sort of like the origins. And I think, yeah, but of course, as with all technology, people end up using it how they want. And certainly in 2005, people didn't want to upload video, you know, it wasn't dating, video dating, like nobody wanted to do that. So they started to upload home videos and a lot of recorded clips of late night shows and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, then it ended up taking off in a different way. In your mind, what are some of the big moments in the YouTube story 
that stand out to you as these were seminal, important moments or changes for folks who may not know uh, how we got here? Well, I mean, partner program launching in 2007, huge moment. I think YouTube acquiring Next New Networks, which was their original MCN, a sort of multi-channel network, which would sort of sign a bunch of talent. YouTube acquired them. And actually, the word creator was, in its modern usage, pioneered by Next New Networks. It was Tim Shea's team that was in charge of sort of creator partnerships and everything that ended up being the YouTube Next Lab, which ended up being the YouTube Creators program. And that's that whole creators team was born out of Next New Networks. Um, and we wouldn't have, be using the word creator today if Next New, you know, if YouTube didn't acquire them. I don't know what language we'd be using, but it came from them. And you know who else was on that team was Vanessa Pappas, or who goes by V Pappas now, actually, who was COO of TikTok and was running TikTok mm. um, until recently. So it's just very interesting, like how these characters kind of end up like you know, where they end up going. But um, yeah, and then I would say another big moment with YouTube is the adpocalypse. Um, for people who aren't familiar, uh, the adpocalypse was around, I think it was 2017, kind of early 2018. And that's when a bunch of big advertisers pulled their money out of YouTube and sort of decimated a bunch of smaller channels. Like it kind of the bottom fell out of a lot of the advertising industry. And that's that's also when you start to see a lot of critical coverage of YouTube in the press for the first time. And tech generally, that was around Cambridge Analytica. It was like suddenly like the first half of the 2010s, it was like, yeah, YouTube's a site for cat videos. It's so fun. We love YouTube. Like, it's great. And then 2017 happened and they were like, wait, what did Logan Paul do? Like, what did PewDiePie do? Also, like Alex Jones is on there. Like, what's, what's going on? And so, you know, it started to get a lot of negative press. And I think actually the company has handled it pretty well. I, to give YouTube some credit, they... They put out a, a, a or independent sort of research body put out a report recently showing that they had basically sort of fixed a lot of the problems with their algorithm. Their algorithm used to sort of lead you down this path hole of sort of increasingly extreme content, and they've been able to fix a lot of those algorithmic problems that I think got them into that bad place. I hear you say the year 2018. I'm like, man, that was just like a couple of years ago, and I realize it's almost six years ago at this point. Yeah. Time is a <laughs> difficult thing post COVID. Um, yeah. I want to I want to talk a little bit about MCNs because that's something that I hear come up from like elder creators that kind of just gets mentioned offhand and then swept away. But at the time, it was a big deal. And you just mentioned that one of the major S MCNs was acquired by YouTube themselves. So can you explain the MCN thing? Yes. So MCN stands for multi-channel network. And the idea behind them is very good. It was just sort of the execution that fell apart. So the notion is basically like, hey, all of these individual creators, it's hard for them to sort of individually negotiate brand deals, you know, get the right equipment, collab. Like it's hard to be on your own as a creator. So let's have this umbrella company. We'll sign, you know, 20 creators and then we will sort of collectively negotiate brand deals and opportunities and we'll sort of help boost their channel and we'll give them like a dashboard so that sort of lets them, you know, we'll give them some tech tools maybe to help with their channel. So it sounds great in theory. And then of course the MCN would take a cut of all the revenue that they generate for those channels, that the channels generate. The way it ended up working out is that these MCNs just really, because they got a lot of venture capital money, were pressured to scale faster than they really could. So they started signing hundreds of channels and just basically not really doing anything for these channels and then taking a, you know, 30% of their ad revenue, which is a really bad deal for creators because it's like, hey, I thought you were going to help me out. Suddenly I just basically you're just this like middle band that's now taking a huge cut of my ad revenue. What the hell? 
So, um, you know, that kind of that that initial excitement, I think, went bust. I think early MCNs, like Next New Networks, they were actually doing a lot. They were basically doing the job of a manager. I think nowadays YouTubers just generally have like a manager or like a brand manager that that does that stuff kind of directly. They don't have to go through an MCN. But yeah, the early MCNs provided a lot of services. But by like 2013, 2014, they were just all about scale. This is another character that came up that I that I read and thought, oh, I know that guy, Ezra Cooperstein. Yes! who's involved in the history of MCNs and is now, you know, the president of Knight, which is a management company that represents some of the biggest creators on the platform today, Mr. Beast, Ryan Trahans. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was interesting to see some of these recurring names that I know today. And of course it makes a ton of sense. The people who yeah. have been there seeing the stuff, working on it for the longest, have the best insight and foresight to do important things a day. But it's so funny because, you know, when all the VCs started pouring money into the creator economy in 2021 and Silicon Valley sort of notoriously shunned the creator economy largely until 2021, they didn't realize there's already people like Ezra that are really smart business people like operating in this space. And I think a lot of them thought, oh, well, he just did this overnight or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. These, this guy has been in the game for 15 years. He did like the original Carl's Jr. Like, you know, ad deal on YouTube. Like, And so there's just a lot of, I think like a lot of Silicon Valley VCs like underestimated a lot of these entrepreneurs actually in the space that have done a lot. And they underestimated the creators too, if I, if I may step in and say this, which is, you know, I, I also have a little bit of a background in startups and investing. And I looked at the money coming in and I was just thinking, you guys are funding platforms that are looking for problems. Like a lot of these <laughs> platforms that are getting money don't ha- aren't solving real problems that the creators have. You're imagining these problems exist because you don't know the creators and you don't know how resourceful and creative these people are <laughs> at solving their own problems. Uh, so yeah. I'll end that rant there. But yeah, <laughs> even now we're seeing the blowback of that poor investing into the space and like, ah, creator economy, that was nothing. Creators themselves are doing better than ever. It's yes. it's a mismanagement and a misdirection of funding and attention, I think. I thought um, there's a girl, Kaya Yurif, um, who writes a newsletter yes. for the information. She wrote a great piece, actually, sort of outlining that. And she crunched some numbers and was like, okay, Yes, these investments were very bad and stupid, but the content creators themselves, like Mr. Beast is only growing, you know, like these other people are only growing. So, yeah. I think we'll see some interesting new financial vehicles for creators, like revenue-based financing. I think there's more interesting ways. Venture capital as a whole is a dated financial instrument. And I think it's even more dated feeling in in this space. After one more break, Taylor and I talk about Vine and the key reason why it imploded. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, 
not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super-duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Hey, welcome back. One of my favorite parts of Taylor's book was the look at Vine and why they imploded despite incredible creators on the platform and users who absolutely loved it. So I asked Taylor to explain what happened. Yeah, it's so funny to look back at Vine because it was such an example of what can go wrong and why pla- what happens when platforms sort of alienate all their biggest creators. Vine was founded by you know this group of entrepreneurs. It was bought actually pre-launch by Twitter it took off among this sort of group of young content creators. And those content creators were not people that the founders of Vine liked. The founders of Vine had these big sort of intentions to make the app this like home for sort of like stop motion animation and like creativity and just kind of like not how people ended up using it, which is this like really weird like internet way for sort of like funny videos and pranks and stuff. And so they sort of had this really hostile relationship to their own talent. It was also hard because they were owned by Twitter. And Twitter has also always struggled with how to handle content creators. Early on in Twitter, a big concern, like celebrities all wanted to be paid to set up their Twitter accounts and tweet. And Twitter was like, no, we will never pay celebrities. We don't want to start paying users ever. So when these Vine stars started to generate content and views and stuff, and then they wanted money, the company's stance was like, one, we don't have that much money. We're barely profitable. I don't even think they were profitable at the time. And two, if we start paying you, Viners, celebrities are going to want to get paid to tweet, and we can't afford that. So, like, we're not going to do it. And, of course, this was handled in sort of a really messy way, and it ended up basically all the Viners were like, okay, well, then why are we even on here? Because we could just go to YouTube and make a ton more money. Actually, they went to Facebook first and then YouTube. And so they all left the platform, and now some of them are the biggest YouTubers today. I want to fill in a couple of details there that stuck out to me. Yeah. But this this issue of Viners wanting money, that was close to a decade into them being on the platform. Like it felt like the real issue was Vine ignored them for so long that they felt so unseen, so unappreciated. They had literally formed a physical community to basically monopolize how the platform fed attention to different accounts. And at a point of like final frustration, many years down the line, they basically tried to exploit Vine. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and and Vine said we can't do that. So like it felt like if they would have taken the YouTube approach of let's bring our creators in as partners early, it probably never would have gotten there. Totally. And also so much of it wasn't even about money. It was about the fact that like the founders of Vine were just openly hostile to these creators. I mean, I use this example of Nash Greer, like, you know, when Vine rolled out vanity URLs, like, you know, at signs basically like, you know, vine.co slash Taylor Lorenz or whatever. They didn't give it to the creators. And so people snatched up the creators. So none of the biggest creators, including Nash Greer, had their names as their handles, which caused all this confusion and just like silly things like that. It's like, yeah, give the creators early access to features like that's so basic now. But it's like they didn't want them on the platform. And so and they would kick them off the popular page for no reason. And 
they were just very hostile to them and it just backfired spectacularly, unfortunately. I didn't realize until reading the book that Vine was acquired pre-acquisition. Like I knew it was acquired by Twitter. I didn't realize it was literally before they even made the the app public. I didn't realize the Vine that we knew and loved and used was always owned by Twitter. Yes, which is part of the dysfunction, I think, too, because Twitter, totally. I think like, it, I think Twitter, I think it was like the Vine founders had a hostile relationship to talent, but then Twitter at that time also was getting very nervous because Twitter had this weird relationship with celebrities, like actual Hollywood celebrities. And so I think that that tainted a lot of the like energy towards creators because they didn't, there was, I think the Vine itself, like had it not almost been Twitter, maybe it would have been a little bit more responsive, but because it was part of this sort of mismanaged bigger company that remains mismanaged to this day, although it has a new owner, it's like Twitter's never really broken through. It's always been sort of like number three or four, you know? It's kind of insane just how ahead of the curve Vine was. Because so much of it felt then like TikTok kind of feels now, you know? And like we're still using it, like more than ever. So it's it's really interesting how early it was. And it really kicked off a lot of the people that we still know and watch and see doing big things today. A hundred percent. I think we we wouldn't have TikTok today if it wasn't for Vine. And also, you know, Vine's death led to the birth of Musical.ly, which is obviously what became TikTok. Um, And part of the reason, like part of what fed Musical.ly was this desire for mobile video editing. A lot of Viners that left Vine went to Musical.ly, actually. And so, yeah, Vine taught people to post video. I mean, it's the reason we have Instagram video. Instagram video launched that in response to Vine. Like this whole like video internet that we have was very much like kicked off, like mobile internet kicked off by Vine. It's also interesting to look and see just how much Instagram strategy has always been like kind of wait and see what's working and then just do that feature, arguably do it better, but with a larger user base. And it's it's wild. It's it's impressive to see. I don't know how I feel about it, like ethically, morally, creatively, but, but it's undeniable, like how good they've been at just seeing like, okay, stories are a thing on Snapchat. Let's do that. Uh, Video is a thing on Vine. Let's do that. Really, really smart. And they do it very quickly and they do it at a high level. And honestly, I think for the creators, for the most part, they're probably happy about it because they weren't getting appreciated on Vine. They weren't getting appreciated on Snapchat. You talk about Snapchat in the book as well, which I think is definitely an untold story in the space. It feels it feels so young still to me that it feels like we haven't really given a, a postmortem on that still existing thing at all. Yeah, yeah. Snapchat's funny. I mean, well, Snapchat recently with Discover, I will say, has been making creators a lot of money because they've pivoted into sort of like doing deals. You know, David Dobrik, I don't know, he posts 100 times a day now and makes interstitial ad revenue. But Snapchat had a whole generation of content creators in the mid-2010s that they could have fostered and nurtured. And they they also were really hostile to these people. They wanted it to be this place that was only friends. And, and then they did a bunch of deals with media companies but they didn't, yeah, they didn't want the creators on until, again, the pandemic, creator economy starts to become a thing. And then they're like, oh, hey, wait a minute, guys, we've got Spotlight now. Like, we 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 actually want creators on here. We'll pay you. So they're playing catch up again when they shouldn't have had to because had they just embraced creators from the beginning, they would be actually quite ahead. They'd be really able to compete with TikTok and stuff. So, you know, there's that old saying that history repeats or you may say, History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. What do you what do you look forward to that you see 
as definitely happening or you think is going to happen or you will even just want to warn people about who are creators today, what what should we be watching for? I think it's so competitive for creators today. And so I think it's like the internet has just like reached this level of scale and virality that it's so difficult to compete. I don't know how anybody's able to like sustain it. Burnout is still a huge issue. But I would say we're also moving away from these like big broadcast-based social platforms where a lot more people are spending time in private spaces, kind of more group chats, Discord, things like that. And that can make it harder for creators. Initially, you think, oh, are people going to be turning away from Instagram or YouTube or whatever? But I think it actually gives creators a chance to build their own communities and kind of like foster community. And I wrote a piece about a year ago just about how like like views culture versus like community culture and how like I think the 2010s were defined by this like views culture and just getting views and scale and then monetizing those views. And I do think that like now we're in this era of more of like a community and just like having your people, you know, even if it's not millions, it's like a solid base, you know, you can count on they'll buy your merch, they'll see your shows, whatever. What platforms feel safe to be building on right now in your mind? And what platforms feel a little bit risky? Well, YouTube's always a safe bet, you know, but it's also the hardest. I've, you know, I have so much empathy for the people that can grow on there because it takes a long time. So I think TikTok is still also pretty reliable for growth. I don't think it's getting banned, you know, anytime soon. And I think it's still, even though everyone else says, oh, it's so saturated, like you can still pop on there. It's a good engine for discovery. Instagram is a little bit harder because you never know what they're going to do. I think Instagram, it's like, if they're being friendly to you and you can leverage reels in a good way, go for it, but certainly don't build your creator ecosystem on the back of Instagram. And then I'm really excited by things like Patreon, um, you know, rolling out like the ability to post sort of like free, just post for free. And you can follow people on Patreon now without having to pay to subscribe. And these platforms that are like Substack kind of too, it's like it's building this more direct relationship with your follower base. That's always a safe bet because you've got those people's emails now. That's just really, you want that direct relationship, ideally. Something that wasn't spoken about much in the book, and I also don't think that much about, is Twitch and streaming platforms. Where do you think that lives as we move forward? Yeah, I had a lot more about Twitch in the original, and then it kind of was like, getting too confusing um, with some of the other stuff. It is, I mean, I talk about live streaming, especially the live streaming boom of the mid-2015s when you had like Periscope and Meerkat and You Now and all that stuff. And I do think that that like ushered in, like Twitch was the winner of that like crop of companies, although it was founded before them, like it kind of emerged as the big one. And I think it's like so intertwined with gaming. It's interesting, but they've kind of been giving their creators a bad deal lately. Yeah, that's that's why it was interesting to me because that was a recent topic of conversation. Like it seemed like they yeah. had had this facade of this is a good deal. And then people were like, just kidding. It's it's yeah. actually not that great for most of us. Yeah, it's really hard. And, you know, Twitch creators, that's always, I always have said, like, it's like just the one creator I could never, you have to sit for so long. You have to really, it's crazy. It, it takes, a, it, you've just got to grind on Twitch and it's hard and it requires hours. And so I think it's, I can understand people wanting to flee to other platforms like Kick or whatever that are offering them better rewards. I don't think live streaming's going away at all, but I do think people are more interested in sort of interactive live streaming, mobile live streaming. So like TikTok live and things like that seem to be growing. I don't know that the like desktop live streaming of Twitch will be around forever, but it's not like it's not going to go out of business anytime soon. It's just like if I was choosing what to be in 20. 
23, I don't know that I would try to get into Twitch, just knowing the company and how hard it is. What do you think about what it means to be a celebrity in the internet age, especially as things get more and more fragmented? You know, you say we're moving to this world of more of a community than views. And so what does it mean to be a celebrity today? And how is that going to change in the world of the internet? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think so much of my book and so much about the rise of this ecosystem is also about the changing nature of fame and kind of what fame means and and who is a celebrity. I don't think, I think it's almost impossible to get famous today without the internet. Even if you yourself aren't like a Lil Nas X or Olivia Rodrigo or like, you know, Sydney Sweeney or something like person, Selena Gomez, like, you know, it's like there's these celebrities that are very good at using the internet for their own gain. But even if you're not that person, you need the internet to make you a star. Like, I mean, the Barbie movie is a good example. That's like a traditional movie. They did so much with the marketing. But the internet is what gave that movie the box office success. And you see that over and over again now in Hollywood. It's like, you still rely on virality, whether it's traditional Hollywood or you're a YouTuber, you're relying on viral viral attention. So I think it's changed the nature of celebrity a lot. And I think now there's just not that distinction between who's famous and not famous. It's like we're all famous to like niche groups of people. Like you might be really famous in like the bike YouTube community, you know, and maybe a celebrity in that area. But it doesn't there's not that like celebrity celebrity and then everyone else. Another point that stuck out in the book was all of these small groups of creators who sprung up usually around specific platforms, right? Like, hey, we're all Viners or we're all on Snap or on on Instagram. And it seems like there's a lot of power in creators with a following getting together, really promoting each other, self-promoting each other or cross-promoting each other. Almost seems like that's more of a needle mover than the platform itself, you know, do you yes. see that continuing? Yes. I think human beings are social creatures and it's every creative, like to succeed creatively, you need collaboration. It's really hard to do on your own. And that's true in, in every industry. I wrote a couple of pieces about content houses um, back in 2020 when there was like the hype house and the sway house, whatever. And I talk about content houses in the book. I mean, even the station was in 2009, the first YouTuber content house, which was, you know, hard to believe that was almost 15 years ago. Like, People want to help each other and like play off each other and also grow together. It's much easier to grow when you can kind of swap promotion on each other's channels and stuff. So I, I still think it's a really good strategy. And if you get in in the right group, sort of like collaborative group or even if it's loose or not, like it's just an instant boost for everyone because you assuming it's like a positive collaborative relationship, you can share knowledge, you can share expertise, you can trade brand deals like helpful. I think what's a little bit harder, what people learned in 2020, especially these Gen Z's that tried to make the like TikToker houses is like, that doesn't mean you need to like formalize it or like all live together. You know, that can sometimes be a recipe for disaster, especially if it's a bunch of like teenagers. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in group chats with other writers and I couldn't do my job without sort of like brainstorming with them sometimes or being like, hey guys, like, what do you think of this headline? Like, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? You know, like, how does it sound? And I think YouTubers do that too. There is so much more to this book than we could possibly cover in this interview. So I hope you consider picking up your own copy. Just go to extremelyonlinebook.com or visit the link in the show notes. 
Thank you to Taylor for being on the show. Thank you to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing this episode. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making our artwork. And thank you to you for giving this a listen. If you enjoyed this episode, please tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're getting close to 400. It would be a big milestone. It would mean a lot. So if you haven't already, leave a review. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.